I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. You're listening to our daily podcast edition of the program. I'm delighted to welcome to our program today the co-founder and director of One Day Sooner, Josh Morrison. Thank you for joining me today. Uh, Thanks for having me. Josh, can you tell me about your project, its formation in the context of COVID and attempting to vaccinate the, the, not just the United States, but the entire world against the disease? Yeah, so One Day Sooner is a group that advocates on behalf of uh, COVID challenge volunteers. That is, people who uh, want to be exposed to COVID infection in a scientific experiment to help learn about the disease and find a vaccine and find treatments. And our organization was started uh, at the end of March of this year. Uh, so it's really been quite a, quite a whirlwind. And basically, you know, my day job uh, normally is with advocacy for living organ donors. Uh, I'm a kidney donor myself. And, you know, when I read about challenge studies, this is back in March, I live in, in New York City, uh, where the epidemic was really hitting us hard. And, you know, any idea that felt like it could actually save time and getting a vaccine and get things back to normal sooner really, really appealed to me. And, you know, I thought about this and I thought, well, would I want to participate in a study that, that would deliberately infect me with COVID? And I thought, well, if it, if it could really make a, a difference and be really valuable, you know, I'm in a good position in my life to, to do that. I'm, I'm fairly young. I'm 35. I don't have kids. I'm in good health. And I felt like if I think this is a good idea, you know, why should, would, should someone else do it? Why shouldn't I do it? And that, you know, that was kind of the belief at the beginning of One Day Sooner. And, and given my experience with kidney donation um, and advocating for donors, I felt like the idea of helping bring an organization together uh, with all sorts of people who wanted to volunteer and wanted to participate in these studies would be a good idea. And since then, um, we've had 32,000 people from over 140 countries come forward as interested in participating in these studies. Have there been any cases so far um, of government allowed um, proactive infection of of a a group? Uh, In in previous diseases, yes. Um, For COVID. COVID. uh, Right, but so not yet for for COVID. Oxford right now is working on developing a a study, which they're hoping to do this fall, and we're collaborating with them on that. And the reason a study hasn't happened yet is there's a couple steps that need to to go into doing one of these studies. The first is that you need to safely and reliably produce the virus under what's called good manufacturing practices. Basically, it's the same standard you would use if you're if you're creating, you know, a million doses of a drug or of a vaccine, but this is for the virus itself to make sure that it's reliable, there isn't any contamination, things like that. And that's actually more difficult than you would think because the virus, you know, it needs to be handled only in the most secure um, biocontainment facilities. And there just aren't a lot of places in the world that can produce, you know, that can produce things in a lab. Um, uh, under under those conditions. And of course, you know, everyone's quite busy right now. Um, so it's, it's taken a little bit of time to, to get these moving ahead. Um, but there, there are plans to, to hopefully do these studies, uh, probably starting in the in the fall. And you are working to develop the infrastructure in one or more countries to enable 
those studies? Uh, are there specific countries where you believe you will get the legal and ethical allowance to do it under the secure conditions you're describing? So, yeah, so our job at One Day Sooner, like I said, is we advocate on behalf of the challenge volunteers. And so if challenge studies are going to be useful, we obviously, as volunteers, want them to be available. And so helping, you know, try to try to create the preconditions for their availability, um, that's, that's our goal that's really important to us. And so, you know, like, like I mentioned, I think right now, England is sort of the front runner um, for these, these studies. The United States is interesting because the National Institutes of Health um, has, the, has a long and storied history of doing challenge studies. We do a number of them um, for flu. And, you know, the, the NIH has agreed that they should be preparing the virus for use in these studies. But there's been disagreement about whether to do the studies before you have um, a sort of effective preemptive therapy to be very certain that you can keep moderate COVID from becoming severe COVID. And we don't have that yet. And so that's why, you know, at the moment, there aren't plans by the National Institute of Health to, um, to do these studies. But there's also universities in the United States that could consider doing them. Um, so we think that, you know, I've, I've mentioned the U.S. and the U.K., but there are other countries as well. Belgium, for example, is building a, a large biocontainment facility uh, in which you could run COVID challenge studies. So there are other countries interested um, in this, but publicly, Right now, it looks like England is the kind of front runner to do the first of these studies. So England might do this, um, and, and it would be with how many people? So typically, you know, so, so the studies are being designed, so I can't give a precise number yet. But what I can say is that normally the first of these studies, what's called a stage one or infectious dosing study, that typically has about 40 to 50 people in it. And that's a study to study the virus um, rather than a study of vaccine. And you do that for a couple of reasons. The first is that um, challenge studies provide immense scientific value for understanding this disease because there's no other context that we can actually observe closely someone being exposed to the disease and seeing the human response and, and what actually happens. And that's hugely valuable from a scientific perspective. Um, but then also what the phase one study does is it determines the viral dose and weight method of delivery to give to people when you're testing the, the vaccine. So a vaccine challenge study, the sort of second stage of them, those traditionally involve about 100 people uh, in, in those studies per vaccine tested. Now, with COVID, um, you might end up using fewer people than that. Uh, so it might be, might be less. But basically, the, the first studies, I would say, probably something around 40 to 50, and then later studies, probably a bit higher than that. But it's, you know, it's a little bit complicated. There's a lot of moving parts, um, and so we can't, we can't say for certain yet. I would sort of, my mental model of this is to estimate that if challenge studies become fairly widely used, we should expect roughly about 1,000 people to participate within the next 18 months or so. So is it your hope that by expediting this process under the conditions that are safe, uh, you will be able to develop a working vaccine um, that every person in the world would be able to, to take and um, that that is our most likely 
path to eradicating COVID. Yeah, we think, and I, I would say that it's about developing vaccines, plural, and not one vaccine singular. It's going to take multiple different vaccines to fully extinguish and eliminate this disease, which I agree needs to be the priority. Because basically, you know, we're going to need 16 billion doses of vaccines to, and to vaccinate the whole world. Because most of these vaccines are going to be not one dose, but two doses. There's the vaccine, and then a month later you take a booster. And so it's not just a matter of finding one great vaccine, but it's a matter of finding the best vaccines, the ones that are most effective, that are easiest to distribute, and, and finding a, a proving that a number of them work across different, type, different platforms, different types of factory for the vaccine, essentially, um, for, for how the vaccine works. So I think challenge studies have an important role to play not just in that first vaccine, but in developing a number of really strong vaccines uh, to do the best we can against this virus. Right. And so, you know, is there any concern given the novelty here, Mm -hmm. the the newness of the pathogen, that Mm -hmm. by exposing people in the, the sort of lab conditions that you're describing could, um, could, could actually create um, more infectious varieties of, of COVID or, or a deadlier uh, virus? So, so I, think, I think not. I think that's something that can be avoided, and that's for a couple reasons. The first reason is um, when people participate in these studies, uh, they're quarantined um, for probably about a few weeks, and they're in a biocontainment facility that's at, that's at a pretty high level. So the chance that a, um, a virus that you infect someone with in one of these studies then is um, uh, then infects someone in the outside world is very low because there's a lot of care that's taken and people are, are confined um, and isolated in these facilities. So it's, it's very, very unlikely that anyone who wasn't an actual participant in the study would ever be infected um, by, the, by the virus that's used. But the second thing to, to mention is that... Um, it's, you know, COVID is not like the flu, where the flu mutates quite a bit. Um, and there's all these different new strains, and it, it really matters. Um, SARS-CoV-2, uh, there, there are fewer mutations. Um, for at least, at least I should say, you know, because I'm not, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a scientist. But based on what we know so far, it seems to be the case there's not huge amounts of mutation, and it certainly isn't mutating um, as much as the flu. So it's fairly unlikely um, that, that doing something like this, that you would have, you know, a sort of super strain or something that was, was you know, worse than what we get commonly, because we just haven't been seeing that much changes um, to, to COVID or to SARS-CoV-2 so far. So, you know, you're saying the risk of a mutation that could exacerbate the health crisis is not there. You're in controlled conditions where you would avoid the possibility of any kind of super spreading seeding events by people who were infected that those are the very secure conditions in which this will this will happen and mm-hmm. and it all sounds very promising until we recognize that scientific mm-hmm. illiteracy in this country you can have the most convincing pandemic playbook you can have the most effective vaccine or therapeutic Mm-hmm, and people mm-hmm. will still refuse to yep. be vaccinated. And we live at a moment 
I would suspect that is far more susceptible to ignorance and mis and disinformation than mm-hmm. when the polio vaccine was created and then subsequently yep. tested and, and polio was eradicated. Uh, so we're living in a different period. And I, and I just don't know how much confidence we can have that the vaccine approach is the one that's going to resolve this. Well, you know, I think, you know, I think there's a couple of things there. One, is it a silver bullet or, you know, are we going to uh, figure out, okay, this vaccine works and then we snap our fingers and, and the COVID outbreak is over? No, that's, that's not true. And it's true that distributing the vaccine and making sure that everyone who needs it can get it and everyone who uh, could use it does take it, you know, that's a challenge. And that's, some, that's, a, that's a thing that as a society we need to confront. Um, but I will say, you know, I, I actually um, have a lot of faith in the American people and, and really in, in people around the world. You know, I, I think that, yes, the American government's response, uh, the federal government especially, has not been perfect, to say the least. But I think we all should feel a lot of pride in um, people's willingness to, you know, drastically change our own lives to, to avoid the spread of the disease and to be, you know, wearing face masks and, and everything like that. And so I do think that it's going to be a challenge to educate the public um, about vaccination, the need for vaccination, the safety of vaccination, and to develop a vaccine that is, you know, safe and effective enough and that has been developed in a way where we can all trust it. You know, those are real challenges. But I do think that ultimately we are, our country and, and the rest of the world is going to be up to that challenge. And one of the things, you know, that we feel at One Day Sooner, or we hope, is that that um, our volunteers, you know, there's, there's like I said, 32,000 people um, who've signed up. You know, there's, there's going to be far more people um, than are going to be able to participate or, or eligible to participate. But we want to be ambassadors for vaccination. And we hope that the sort of story um, of challenge studies is something that, can, that people can um, identify with and, and learn about and find interesting and, and see vaccination not just as something you're doing for yourself, but something you're doing for the rest of society and is a real chance to be fighting against this virus. Oh, this sort I, I of mean, I really appreciate your mission, Josh. I, I, I don't necessarily doubt citizens and, and their will to help solve this. I think they're the most ingenious and, and, and the most uh, patriotic. Um, but I don't think that you're going to be able to have the success with strong men populists who deny science and who would deny a vaccine to people, you know, just in the same way that the federal government threatened to and denied protective equipment to constituencies that didn't vote for the incumbent president. So I, I, I think that, you know, the, the reality of, of not just Trump, Bolsonaro, others is that there are political leaders who manipulate reality to the point of, of the opposite being what is true. Um, and, and that, you know, we, we can't really have confidence that governments are going to, Mm -hmm. uh, safely roll out safely and equitably roll out, um, vaccines. I mean, how, how do you have the confidence that, that, uh, they will be able to do so? Well, um, that's a little bit, yeah. So I think I, I agree with you that it's going to be a, a real, real challenge and that, um, you know, different governments would perform, perform differently. And some governments have given, 
uh, better or worse grounds to um, uh, to indicate you know that they're they're going to do well. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily say that I'm I'm confident that all governments are going to to handle this well, um, uh, let alone optimally. Um, but I would say that I'm I'm optimistic uh, about people's ability to learn about vaccination and I you know vaccine hesitancy and people not wanting to, to take a vaccine that's always going to be a concern that's going to be an issue. Um, but I'm I'm optimistic about our ability to confront that issue, even if I wouldn't necessarily say that I'm confident um, that our government will necessarily do a great job. Yeah, I mean, I think that that the people who were uh, uh, courageously stepping forward to be infected and to and to help uh, mitigate the crisis um, and expedite the medical resolution, you know that that most of them probably want to pledge from Oxford mm-hmm. or other pharmaceutical companies and or governments that this is going to be free of charge and available to all people. And thus far there have not been uh, assurances to that effect. Correct. So I actually think, you know, I think we'd be in a much, so I, I agree. And that's something that we as an organization are very interested in. And, and we have a, a weekly call sort of figuring out what the best way to, to kind of use our voice um, as challenge volunteers to be advancing the goals of vaccine equity and availability. And I agree, they're very important goals, in part because it's not just a matter of getting people, you know, vaccines in America, but it's also a matter of treating people you know, with the rest of the world with respect and, and like they're worthy, their health matters as well. Um, and so that's definitely something that's important to us. Um, and we, we, you know, we haven't seen the guarantees that, that you'd like to see, but I think that there are, you know, that, that what Gavi and COVAX, uh, excuse me, what Gavi and CEPI are doing um, with their COVAX facility to try to secure um, uh, vaccines for people in low and middle income countries I think that's a really important step. I think that's a good starting point to build off of. And I do think that if all of the different um, uh, pharma companies that, that have vaccine candidates made the same commitments that AstraZeneca and Oxford have made already, I think that would be um, a real step forward. Because um, I think because AstraZeneca, I can't remember the exact number of doses um, that they've committed for um, uh, low and middle income countries offhand, uh, but they have made a significant commitment to provide uh, those doses for a dollar each um, to to a number of these countries. And so I think, you know, it's it's a matter of making sure that everyone follows that example. Um, but I, I think there there are some, you know, promising indications that, you know, there's there's going to be some progress towards this, even though I think, you know, we as a society have to treat this, you know, the way that our country treated World War II And we should be aiming in 2021, not just to vaccinate all Americans, but to vaccinate the the entire world. Right. And and of course, it it does not help that America has been complicit in the scientific illiteracy and and our government has not really been straight with the American people about the contagiousness. And we had very clear what I would call death trails from China and Italy and there was a lot of negligence and ignorance. Um, and so whether we can kind of rejigger and, and, and calibrate uh, to have the World War II ally mm-hmm. power devotion to the cause, it's, it remains to be clear. But let me, let me just ask you this, uh, Josh. The one thing that has come up so far 
is that um, folks who are taking the vaccine um, trials that are available, um, not the challenges, but uh, the, the early stages of the non-challenge studies, um, many of them have, have become sick. And, and uh, it sounds like, but there's no scientific consensus yet that that this is going to be a lot harder than some other vaccines to find a um you know a it sounds like it's it's going to be a lot more like the flu in terms of the efficacy of it um rather than polio um mm-hmm. and and can can you elaborate on that i mean can mm-hmm. is there is there a way uh to, to create um, a sustainable antibody that, that lives on and so that after one or two boosters, you know, the, this will be as effective as uh, a polio uh, vaccine, for instance? Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. And the first thing I'd say is that, um, yeah, I think we should have the set, our, set realistic expectations of what the first vaccine that's proven is going to do. Because I agree that it's, you know, historically, it's not, you know, usually you don't get it exactly right on the first try, right? And so it's probably unlikely that the first vaccine that's going to be approved is going to be 90% effective and easy to deliver um, and have limited uh, side effects. Um, And that's part of why challenge studies are useful is to, to get sort of the race for the best vaccine. Um, rather than just the race for the first vaccine. But I'll also mention, you know, I think in terms of the side effects that um, we've seen so far, you know, basically the, that's something that I'm called sort of uh, reactogenicity. That is, does the, the vaccine generate um, a reaction? And it's true that, for example, the Oxford vaccine generated a, a stronger, you know, kind of more likely to have fever um, I, can't, I, think, I think fever was the main one, maybe headaches as well, than uh, a meningitis vaccine they tested as a control. But it still was within a, a pretty reasonable range. And that doesn't indicate that there's going to be sort of like long-term uh, side effects of using the vaccine. Uh, instead, that's just sort of the, the level of discomfort that's going, that you're going to get um, when you're using it. And, and there were some you know, examples of you know, significant fevers within the Moderna vaccine but again, I think the, what we've been seeing is a relatively normal range and not something that in and of itself is grounds for concern. In the wider phase three trials, that's when we'll see um, if there are, you know, kind of more, you know, uh, longer term issues uh, with, with the vaccines. And the last thing I'll, I'll say is that I, I do think, you know, it's, it's going to be hard finding a vaccine. I think that actually we're doing better um, with the early candidates than, than we had any right to, to expect. I think we're, you know, I think actually it's, it's going quite well. You have to remember that the average, you know, the, the fastest that any vaccine has ever been developed is, uh, I think, four years. And so, you know, right now it looks like we're on track um, because we, we do have, a, you know, multiple different vaccine candidates that have good evidence of uh, what's called immunogenicity, generating an immune response. Now, what we have to prove it is, does that immune response then lead to, to an effective reduction in illness and infection and, and transmissibility? That's something that we should hope to see this fall in the, the phase three trials. And that's also something that challenge studies could help with. Um, so yeah, I think, I think those are the pieces. Yeah. That. Well, that's, that's helpful, Josh. Just a final question to you, which is what is your outlook 
um, on the therapeutic angle, mm-hmm. the, the idea that there is a drug that can be invented to cure this and, and treat it uh, at an early stage or maybe even a class of new drugs because, again, a lot of people will confuse the early onset of COVID with mm-hmm. or would and did with, with um, other already existing illnesses that are, that are less of a risk of becoming so severe. Mm-hmm. Um, so can the challenge studies be helpful in that respect too in the potential creation of a, of a therapeutic as an approach? They can. Um, so, so I will first say that, um, you know, my, I'm, a, I'm a lawyer by, by training. Um, and so my, my knowledge of vaccines is, is pretty new and, and all dates basically past uh, April or like April 1st of this year. Uh, my knowledge of therapeutics is, is even less. So I don't want to say, say too much. Um, what I will say is that, you know, that challenge studies are a useful way of getting um, an early indication of if, if therapies work because, you know, you have this population that's, that's infected that's under controlled observation. So you can see very closely and you know all the different different variables because they're all controlled. You can, you can see if the therapy works. So when you've exposed people, even in the normal vaccine study, you can test out different promising therapies. So, so they can be useful for that. And then I would say that, um, and again, I'm very much not an expert, um, just hearing from some of the scientists in the field and some of the different ideas being worked on for therapies, particularly something called monoclonal antibodies, um, which basically you're given um, uh, antibodies to the to the um, uh, disease. Um, I, I think you know I, I am optimistic that we'll have good therapies um, that are going to start to get some proof within the next few months. Um, but you know I'm a lawyer by training, so not necessarily the person you should go to for uh, for your knowledge of therapeutics. As a lawyer, because you think you're going to run into challenges uh, with the law to be able to achieve this. So the, uh, from a legal perspective, I think the, in the United States, the FDA would need to approve the use of a challenge study. Um, but really, the bigger issue is going to be having ethical approval from the institution that's running the challenge study. I think if that's the case, I think the FDA approval will not be uh, a major issue. And so I don't really see legal issues with uh, allowing these studies to go forward. I think this is more about you know, policymakers and decision makers at different institutions um, uh, agreeing for these to move forward. And we're seeing, um, you know, I'm very optimistic that one's going to happen in the fall or multiple might happen in the fall. Obviously, Oxford's been publicly announced. There are some other efforts uh, underway as well that have not yet been publicly announced. And um, we're very hopeful um, for the, the usefulness of these studies.